Well, good morning again. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4 as we continue to walk through this glorious gospel and in, in specifically the story of the woman at the well. And by the way, what a glorious line that is in that last hymn, right? My sin, think about it, not in part. but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Indeed, it is well with my soul. I pray that's true of you this morning. You can sing that with gusto. It is well with your soul because your sins have been nailed to the cross and you bear them no more because Christ bore them in your place. Let us hear now the word of the Lord and be looking at verses 27 to 30, really 39 to 42. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but mainly our focus of our attention this morning will be on 27 to 30. Let us hear now the word of the living God. Just then, the disciples came back. Remember, they had been gone to get food. They came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the, of the town and were coming to him. And this is the word of the Lord. The glass grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray. Ask God's blessings on our time together. Father, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Give us grace to live out these words for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a lot of you know C.S. Lewis, a name that I will quote from the pulpit from time to time, and some of you read to, uh, with great effect, and I, I have too over the years. But of course, he was a brilliant man, lived from 1925 till 1931, professor of English at Oxford University, English Literature at Oxford University. In the beginning, and again, a lot of you know this, but Lewis was a skeptic. Lewis didn't believe there, well, wasn't sure you could know there is a God. Wasn't sure there was a God. Was quite certain the God wasn't for him. And there's so many problems with the Christian faith that he just rejected because there's problem of evil and lots of other things that, you know, that we hear people wrestle with today. One of his dearest friends was a man named J.R.R. Tolkien, who is quoted often when Clay, Pastor Clay preaches, because he is in the uh, Lord of the Rings Society, I just found out, and I'm not sure what to make of that, but uh, it's really kind of funny. But he quotes that in every sermon, and I appreciate that because I love it myself. But Tolkien, fellow professor at Oxford, was a believer, follower of Jesus Christ. And Hugo Dyson, another man, they, all, they argued with Lewis about Christianity a lot. They, they tried, they, they shared the gospel with him, and they wanted to know what's now, a very famous walk in September of 1931, a famous walk on that evening. And that walk set the stage for what was about to happen to Lewis the next day. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, skeptic, one of the most brilliant minds Christianity has ever produced, was saved the next day on a ride to the zoo, and he wrote this. And this is fascinating to me. So I told it. He said, I know very well, but hardly how the final step was taken. See, his resistance had been lowered by Tolkien and Dyson and their, the, some of their arguments. He said, I was driven to the zoo at Whipsnade one Sunday morning. 
when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. When I set out for the zoo, I got on the bus, I was lost. When I got to the zoo, I was found. And yet I did not know exactly, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man after a long sleep, listen to this, a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Think of that, beloved. Think of how your life was at one time before the grace of God broke through. When you were asleep, but now you're awake. I, I know that's how it feels for me. What a way to describe it. I was asleep and now I'm awake and I have new eyes to see. All of reality is different. This is precisely what we see in this powerful story of the woman at the well. Now, let's get the context. There's old Larry Munson at Georgia football. Uh, now, as you say, let's get the picture here from, from the verses past as we walk through this chapter. Jesus encounters this woman, goes to Samaria intentionally, this, this village that the Jews despised and avoided at all costs because they felt like they were beneath them, these heathens, these Samaritans, and the Samaritans uh, hated them in like, in like kind. And so Jesus goes through Samaria and encounters this woman at Jacob's well. And now we know why Jesus went there. He goes and he says, give me something to drink. And she said, you've come and you have nothing to draw water in. What do you mean give me something to drink? You, the well's deep. And she kind of makes some excuses. And Jesus said, you know, if you knew who it was you spoke of, you would know that he has living water to give you. And if you were to take a drink of this water, you would never thirst again. And she said, well, yeah, give me this water, but you don't have anything to draw water from. And of course, we know now he was speaking of the living water that is his Holy Spirit himself, right? The Holy Spirit we receive when we come to Jesus. And so she the, becomes the first person in the Gospel of John to clearly be born again. We talked about the new birth in chapter 3 and that wonderful, glorious chapter. Spurgeon called it one of the three threes, Genesis 3, John 3, Romans 3, right? You have, you have fall and, and uh, regeneration and glorification, all those things. But, but it, back in John 3... But she's the first person. It wasn't Nicodemus, it was her. I mean, she come to the well, kind of like Lewis. She come to the well, kind of Lewis en route to the, the zoo. She come to the well, a worldly woman, ignorant of saving truth, thinking only of her material need for water, her thirst. But then she went back to her village, transformed with truth and life coursing through her life. And that's how it is, right? That's how a sinner, that's, that's how a sinner is saved. That's what happened to you in a moment in time, and you may not be able even to pinpoint it. Some of you can, some of you can't. I can. Told you it was in March of 1977, Ivy Log Baptist Church, Blairsville, Georgia. That's when it happened. Some of you can't, and that's fine. I don't think we have to, but it happens, right? You go away, you're lost, and you come back and you're found. And that's what happens to this woman. And I want us to see in this text this morning, these few verses, three lines of evidence. How do we know? say, Pastor Jeff, how do we know? Well, here I think we see three lines of evidence that she's a genuine believer. And there are lines of evidence that show us whether or not perhaps we're believers as well. And that's why I've, I've titled this profile of a saved sinner. So, well, there's only one kind of saved people, saved sinners. And that's right. It's a very simple title. There's no, nothing clever about it, right? It's a saved sinner. And so she exhibits these three characteristics. And I hope these are true of you. 
And I want us to examine ourselves this morning to see if these things are true of us. The first one's this. She exhibited a radical change in values, verses 27 and, and 28. Read those again for us. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to, with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? I think we see here that she comes to value Christ more than earthly things. And a very simple question I want to ask you this morning, and I have to ask myself this every single day, yes, even in ministry, what do I value the most? Where are my affections? Where do they lie? Now, Again, let's get the picture here. Set the scene of Jesus' disciples. They uh, return from, from Sychar just in time to catch the tail end of the conversation. I guess this is a providential arrival here. So God could, the Word of God could tell us this. They were amazed, and I think mostly bewildered, to find Jesus talking with this Samaritan woman. I mean, in this culture, in this ancient culture, it was bad enough to their minds that he was talking to a woman. He's talking to a woman. What's he doing talk, talking to her? They probably were a little skeptical. I mean, I mean, after all, the rabbis in that time had said, let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not even with his own wife. This strict sect of the Jews. No, don't be caught talking to a woman. They had a very low view of women at the time. Christianity, by the way, has transformed that. We get accused of all kinds of things, but Christianity has transformed the, the dignity and worth of, of women as co-inheritors of the, the, the grace of life, of course, made in the image of God. That's an aside, another sermon for another time. But she was also, she was a woman, she was a Samaritan woman, and we know what that means from our, from our time, our, our sermons the past couple weeks, that Samaritans, Jews hated each other, looked down on each other. She's a filthy Samaritan. And she was a loose living sinner. Five times divorced and remarried. Now shacking up with a man without even the benefit of marriage. And shamelessly so. And Jesus looks right into her with his, his omniscience, his x-ray eyes and says, you're living with a man you aren't even married to. And what can she say? But that's right. But to these Jews, this is not the way, maybe the, these disciples, this is not the way a religious leader should comport himself. Come on, Jesus. This is not the kind of company that holy man should keep, in other words. You can just sense, right? They didn't say anything. They've been rebuked. They knew <laughs> this is the Lord. <laughs> We're all going to mess with him, right? We're going to say this to him. They didn't say he kept the, held their peace. We learned that here. So what do you seek? Or why are you telling her they're going to ask? But they're thinking it. And of course, Jesus knows this, right? Which is, again, frightening that he is omniscient. He knows what you're thinking. Even if you're ignoring this sermon right now, he knows you're ignoring the sermon. So listen up. <laughs> listen up, you people, right? I mean, this, how similar is this the attitude, this attitude to that of the Pharisees when Jesus allowed uh, the tax collectors and the other vile sinners to draw near to him? He was always with sinners. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is... Stunning. Receives sinners, this holy man, and he even goes into the house and shares a meal with them. That's how intimate he is with sinners. I mean, no doubt. Once they found out she was converted, they were astonished at that as well. 
And of course, I love J.C. Ryle. I love what he says. It's a powerful reminder that we should not be astonished when God saves sinners. And I think we are. I, I know sometimes, like, and they had two people saved. And we're like, like that never happens, you know. Ryle said this. He said, how much astonishment every fresh conversion occasions. And it does. What surprise is expressed at the change in heart, life, tastes, and habits of the converted person. What wonder is felt at the power, the mercy, the patience, the compassion of Christ. It is now as it was 1,800 years ago. The dealings of Christ are still a marvel both to the church and to the world. If Christians believed more, they would expect more. And if they understood Christ better, they would be less startled and astonished when he calls and saves the chief of sinners. We should consider nothing impossible and regard no sinner as beyond the reach of the grace of God. Why are we so surprised when we preach this gospel and God does what he promised to do? It's like William Carey said, we should expect great things from God. We should expect, we should expect the lost to be found here. There are lost people. I don't, no doubt there's lost people here. So there's just a few of us, and you know most of us. And Right. I mean, somebody's deceived. Somebody's just outright lost in a crowd of really any size. And yet we seem to be a savior, and I'm, I'm sure they were. I thought, well, this woman, this filthy, nasty, Samaritan woman came to Christ. I mean, I've seen, and, and you have to no doubt, the, and some of you may be the vilest of sinners. Uh, that's my story. I've not always been a preacher, as I tell you. And I told the youth this morning, and it's true, God saved the chief. She, she was the chief of sinners in many ways, and, and so was I. And so probably were some of you, or at least you'd see yourselves that way. But the disciples' minds were fixed on the, the social status quo, the, rather than the ground-shaking effects of Christ's coming and the effects of the gospel. But the woman of the well, she has had her heart transferred from earthly things to heavenly things. I mean, look what she does. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I mean, in one sense, this story has been all about water, right? <laughs> There's a lot of water. There's a lot of water in the Bible. And it's not always good news. When water shows up, usually eh, judgment comes with it. Think of Noah, right? Again, that's another, another sermon for another time or a good, maybe a Sunday night study. Jesus appears, he's thirsting for a drink of water, asking for a drink of water, then tells the woman about living water that only he can give. And these details make a beautiful story. It is, it's, I love this story, and I hope you do too. I mean, the woman then leaves behind her water jar, having found the water that alone satisfies her thirsty soul. And it's true for you, and it's true for me, that Jesus Christ alone will satisfy your thirsty soul you kind of came to the store, maybe you're looking for something. And you don't even know what you're looking for. But you'll find it in Christ. I told my, my kids a couple days ago, we're talking to a couple of my children. I said, you know, I, back when I was a journalist, God gave me great opportunities. I used to interview Major League Baseball players, interviewed four presidents. And I would come home, and my wife will tell you, I was not satisfied with that. I said, this is this all there is to life? And then God called me to ministry, and, and it's, it's, it's completely different. They, uh, swap that for this, and you say, well, boy, that was a great, great thing for you to give up. No, nothing more glorious than what I'm doing right now, preaching this gospel to God's people for God's glory. Only God could do that, right? This woman came to value Christ supremely, and, and, and so must we. 
J.C. Rowell said again, grace once introduced into the heart drives out old tastes and old interests. A converted person no longer cares for what he once cared for. A new tenant is in the house. Somebody new's moved in, right? Into your, the Holy Spirit has moved in. A new pilot is at the helm and the whole world looks different. John Calvin said, when we come to Christ, we see the world through new glasses. He gives us new spectacles. You know, I've got these glasses that I, you, you get a kick out of how I fumble with these things because I like to really just throw them in the back. I can't see if I do, then you'll have to come read this for me. No, we get, new, we get a whole new disposition, no whole new takeaway. We see ourselves differently. We see God differently. We see other people differently. We see life differently, don't we? We have a completely different worldview when we know Jesus because we have brand new spectacles. He's opened our eyes to the, the sinfulness of our, our, our world, the sinfulness of ourselves, and the, the greatness and the holiness and the sovereignty of God and much else. She saw this. She saw this. She left behind she, what she came for. She just forgot about that and she went to tell other people, I've, I've met Jesus. I've met Jesus. She now values Christ above all else. And think about a great illustration of this. Jesus tells in Matthew 13, the pearl, uh, the, 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 the parable of the, she, the, the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. They're right there together, three verses. And the first one, man goes and finds a treasure in the field and he sells everything he has and buys the field because it has the treasure. And Jesus' point is the treasure is Christ. And then he goes on to tell another parable in two verses. There's a man who's searching for the pearl of great price, a jewel of greatest value, a jewel, a jewel merchant. And he found the one worth, worth all the amount of all the others that existed. And he sold everything and he bought it. That's what this woman did here. And this is what a true Christian does. Have you sold everything and, burned, and, and bought Christ? I'll put it another way. Have you burned the ships? This is a, a phrase my wife and I have used. It's an old Stephen Curtis Chapman song. I know that if you know Stephen Curtis Chapman. Have you burned the ships? The old, back in the, the Explorers, Cortez and others, they would, when they r r found North America, they found the country, they'd burn the ships so they wouldn't be tempted to go back to the old land. And friend, that's my question to you, and that's the woman at the well. Uh, the question she, her actions would ask us, have you burned the ships? Are you here to stay? Are you looking back at the old life, at the old man and saying, you know, there's a lot in that old life to commend it to me. There's a lot. There's a lot of good stuff back there. Yeah, I mean, the thing, what I got to do for a living back then was a privilege, and I loved it. And there's a lot of good stuff. But I want to tell you one thing. When we sold our house and everything and moved to Louisville, Kentucky, 1999 to 99. Just, just ahead of Y2K. Whew, glad we missed that, if you know what that is. I remember, I remember the conversation Lisa and I had. We said, we're burning the ships. We're, we're not good. There's no going back. That old life, it's, it's gone. Those old sins, all those old habits, those, even some of the people, it's gone. We're here to stay. Is that you? Do you treasure Christ that much that you said we're going to burn the ships? We want to use a different cross, the Rubicon. There's another good old historical reference for you. Have you? Or are you, you kind of have one foot in, you're kind of halting between two opinions. You've got one foot kind of in the world, one foot in the kingdom of Christ, and you're just kind of playing games. You come to church, you just play games. You're trifling with the things of God. 
mean, what Raul said is true. When Christ comes in, it drives out all old taste and interest. I'm not by any means suggesting I don't flirt with the old man. I certainly do sometimes. I'm a sinner, saved by God's grace. I'm not saying, well, boy, I made a break and look at me. No, no, no. Sometimes I do, and I have to remind myself, no. A new affection, as Jonathan Edwards called it, has come in, and it must come in, and we do everything we can to stoke that flame. Reading the Bible, praying, evangelizing, all these things. Coming to church, making church your excuse for missing other things. That's how we stoke the fires. That's how we grow, and that's how we burn the ships. She values Christ above everything else, and we must ourselves. Some commentators even seem to think that she might have been drawing water to use for purification ceremony, and if so, she's breaking with works righteousness, and that may be true. I don't know. That's a good point. Because Jesus had confronted her because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's broken through to her. I mean, she brought her bucket to Jacob's well to draw stagnant water, but found living water, the living water, which, is, which Jesus promised in, in back in verse 14, chapter 4. It will become a new spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Holy Spirit has come to live in her. We see the evidence here, don't we, of a changed, changed affections. Secondly, second mark here, of a true Christian. She made a robust profession of Christ. She made the first one uh, a radical change in values. Now she makes a robust confession of Christ. Robust because she tells other people. She makes it public. Because when the Spirit of God enters the heart, the new life, He brings, causes a spiritual infant in us to cry out. Confessing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why baptism for Baptists is what we're breaking with the old. The old is old things are passed away, old, all things are made new, we're washed away, we're new creation, right? Any man being Christ, he's new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. That's what we're declaring that we are breaking with the world. We're breaking with the old life. Publicly. We do it publicly. That's why we bapt, we baptize publicly. We don't go into a, so you know, I'll baptize my son in the backyard this afternoon, just me and him. No, 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 no. It's a public confession, a public profession of faith in Christ. I mean, Jesus taught back in John 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. She's been born again. And he says something similar. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He is not able to understand them. She accepts them because the Spirit of God is at work in her. It's evidence. And she makes this robust confession of Christ. Think about Nicodemus' reply. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? Back in, in verse 3, his response. Not everyone who's saved has the same reaction. Of course, I realize that. But Nicodemus was much more religious he was much more, obviously, a moral person, but he left Jesus without professing his faith, and he didn't really profess faith until the cross of Christ. And he confessed it by going up with Joseph of Arimathea to claim Jesus' body and bury it, to declare his solidarity with Christ. But this woman, this Samaritan, this deeply, profoundly sinful Samaritan woman, she is declaring her break with the world and her allegiance with Christ. No doubt, no doubt set on fire because she's been bought out of the slave market of sin and now she's a slave to Christ and to his righteousness. I mean, she beheld Jesus' deity when he revealed himself as the Messiah to her. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
I mean, it's clear from what, what she's already said that I have found the Messiah. What she really means is I have found the Messiah. Come. I mean, this is clear and unashamed public proclamation and demonstrates that she has undergone the new birth. Remember, Paul, in, again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, says no one can say Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't call Jesus Lord unless the Holy Spirit enables you to by God's grace. Evidence. Evidence. Do you publicly profess Christ or are you ashamed of him? Or are you tacitly ashamed of him? You, you, you talk a good ball game. You're like talkative in the Pilgrim's Progress. You talk a good game. You talk, you're talk ever more and over much about religion. It comes right down to it. You could not, if it became illegal to be a Christian, you would not be arrested. It may be someday. I don't know where our country's headed. <laughs> will you be arrested? Well, I hope I will be if that becomes, I mean, not that I have some kind of a death wish, but I hope they'll say that there, there's a Christian. I mean, does your life communicate that Christ is your Lord? Or are you ashamed of the gospel and ashamed of Christ? So that's the second line of evidence. The third and last line of evidence is this, that she was a true believer. She had a real concern for the lost. So she had a radical change in her values. She treasured something. She treasured Jesus above all else. She had a robust confession of faith in Christ. It was very public and she had a real concern for the lost. And she immediately leaves her jug, her water container. And she goes to town and tells others that the Messiah has come. I mean, this, is, this depicts what is or should be true of all of us. The day of her conversion was also the day of her calling to be a missionary of the gospel. He said, well, I'm not called to be a missionary. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, Zimbabwe or, or uh, you know, Colombia or someplace like that. I'm standing right here. No matter. You're called, you're called to be a missionary of the gospel. You've got neighbors around you, they're lost. They don't know Jesus. They need the gospel and they need your faithful witness. And well, boy, don't make them mad at me. Well, no matter. Jesus said, boy, it's not gonna, they're not gonna be happy. They persecute me, they persecute you. I mean, different believers, yes, I agree. We have different spiritual gifts, so it's just not my gift. But every believer has a duty to share the gospel with the lost around them. John Calvin, again, a man who's often erroneously accused of having no interest in evangelism, and some guy I know wrote a book about that one time. A couple of guys, I know. But he said this, It is the nature of faith that we want to bring others to share eternal life with us when we have become partakers of it. The knowledge of God cannot lie buried and inactive in our hearts and not be made known to men. Read that again. That's convicting, isn't it? It is the nature of faith that we want to bring others to share eternal life with us when we have become partakers of it. The knowledge of God cannot lie buried and inactive in our hearts and not be made known to men. The Samaritan woman had experienced the sweet sound of amazing grace. It had saved a wretch like her. And if it saved a wretch like you, how can you keep this to yourself? Do you hear me? It saved a wretch like me. Old John Newton, the slaveholder, wrote that most famous of hymns, and we all love it. But do we live it? Do we believe it? He saved a wretch like me. 
This woman had great zeal to tell the people of, of Sychar about Jesus. People who probably previously shunned her because she was such a, a wicked person in their eyes. But the grace of God had come to her, the chief of sinners. And she could not delay in telling others that this Messiah had come and brought with him the living water of eternal life for all who would come and drink. Come. Come. I love that word here. She tells them, what does she say? Come. It's the invitation. Come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. That's the invitation she gave. She invited them. Come. And this is the invitation that's put before everyone in attendance every Sunday morning at this church. This is the invitation right now. It's come. Come. Come to Jesus this morning. He is ready, willing to save you. Come. We see this all through Scripture. I mean, Jesus gave her this invitation. Go and tell your husband and come here. Jesus just said it to her back in verse 16. It was the invitation of the prophet Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like crimson, red like crimson, they shall be white as snow. Come. Come. Again in Isaiah 55, 1, Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. There we go again, there's the water. Cleansing, it's also, it's, it's judgment and cleansing. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. It was the call foretold by Micah, the prophet, a little bitty prophet in the Old Testament, minor prophet. Come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Come, Micah 4.2, if you want to look that up later. Jesus said to his disciples, what? He said, come, follow me. And they did. And, and one of the most beautiful passages, in my opinion, that has ever been put into print. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Surely some of you have come this morning with burdens. You're weary, you're heavy laden. Run to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Jesus said, come, I will give you rest. It's a promise. Do we stand with our feet planted firmly on those promises? Spurgeon called it faith checkbook. Do we write <clears throat> the cash, the checks God has written of his promises? Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I come to this verse, to this book this morning, to this sermon. I come weary and heavy laden. I'll tell you that right now. I'm weary and I'm heavy laden, and I am being kept by his grace. And in spite of that, I can be joyful because I can run to him. I have him. You have him, Christian. In the final verses of the Bible, we read it again. The Spirit and the Bride say what? What do they say? Say it, church. Come on. They say, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. We're the Bride of Christ. We say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one, he reiterates, he strikes this chord from Isaiah again. Let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. 
You've come to church, but have you come to Jesus? That is the question the woman at the well would put to us. You've come to church. You look nice. You're dressed reasonably well, but have you come to Jesus? If you're here this morning and you're one of those who do not enter heaven, it will not be because there was no invitation offered to you. Because the Spirit and the bride say, come. Come to Jesus. Be transformed. Receive eternal life and and go and be a witness to all the nations of His grace and mercy for you, the chief of sinners. But the invitations always come. And come while the door's open. Come while there's life. Come while today is today. We're not promised tomorrow, are we? What happened? Well, we finish up here. Verses, look down at verse 30. We didn't read this. I'll read it now. Verses, verse 30 and then 29 to 42. They went out of town and were coming to him. Now down to 39. Many Samaritans from the town believe, that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, here it is, here it is, friends, the Savior of the world. It's the good news. We know this is the Savior of the world. Come, we've come to Him, and we know He is the one promised in the Old Testament. What happened? A small revival broke out. Because this woman went and proclaimed Jesus, the Savior of the world. As John the Baptist has put it back in the early chapters, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He is here. Have you drunk of the water of life, beloved? The Samaritans believe because of her testimony. And they, they asked him to stay, and he stayed for two days. He gave himself to them. Look, these sinners, these people, he stayed. Jesus came. They said, come, and he came. If you ask him this morning, he will freely pardon you. You are a guilty sinner before God. There is a death sentence been pronounced over you. And if you will repent of your sins and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, your only hope is your life, he will save you. You only have to come. Salvation is 100% a gift of God. Even faith is a gift, Paul tells us in Ephesians. Jesus came and he stayed two days. They probably didn't. I mean, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, stays two days. You imagine him coming, staying two days at your house? That's one visitor you probably wouldn't want to see go, <laughs> right? Some people come and they stay too long. Not to Jesus, two days. That probably passed like that. And many believe because of his word. And they're convinced not simply because of her testimony, but he is the Savior of the world. He's worked in their hearts, just like he's worked in your heart if you're a Christian. And this small revival comes to to Sikar. I mean, see what the effect of one faithful person can have on a a village or a, a city or a state or a nation. Christ Fellowship, we're a small church. And we're fine with that. To see what can happen if we're faithful to this gospel. See what can happen. One person, go out and tell the good news. What can one church do? 
I can tell you right now, not, not all the churches in Louisville, there are good churches, they don't do evangelism. And, some, and I feel like we're really slacking this sometimes. We, we, we talk about this all the time. If you're visiting, we, we talk, this is a conversation we have among ourselves. This is not me scolding the people I love. This is us saying, man, we need to get busy. We all agree with this, every one of us. I've talked to almost every one of you about this. Right. Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. You say, well, if we could just get somebody, you know, this clown out of the White House and get somebody else in the White House. Or get that clown out of the White House. We got the old clown out, got the new. No. We, that's not what we need. That's not what this country, this nation needs the gospel. Change hearts is the only thing that's going to lead to a changed nation. America will not be great again until she's good again. And you won't be good again until hearts are changed. So we can forget the political solution, right? We're not here to preach a political gospel. The free grace of God in Christ that, the, that this Samaritan woman and what came to, to, to Sychar or Sychar or different ways we pronounce it. We only need to be faithful. C.S. Lewis was saved on a bus ride to the zoo. When Lewis left for the zoo, he was a pagan. And he returned a follower of Jesus Christ. And wrote books that, one of the first serious books I ever read was Mere Christianity about 25 years ago. And it lit a fire in me that to, honestly still has not gone out. I'm standing here preaching in part because of the effects of that book. Sitting in a newspaper in Blue Ridge, Georgia. Read that book given by a pastor friend who worked with me, an editor there. Man, was I blown away by that. But is that you? Are you certain? Or do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt? You might say, well, I'm too sinful. I'm beyond saving. But look at that Samaritan woman. She learned the truth of that great song we sing here sometimes. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our saw, our sin, our guilt. Yonder, on Calvary's mount outpoured. There, where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. I would sing it, but I won't, I'll spare you. Because I'm not a singer. Grace grace, God's grace, freely bestowed on all who would believe, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, all who are longing to see his face will you this moment receive. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that's greater in all our sins has that grace broken through in your life today and is it dominating your life today and changing your affections let's pray together Father I am standing here preaching your gospel because of your grace and every person who's in this church today who is following you is saved by your grace. God, I pray this morning that there be one here among us who does not know you. That they would know, that they know, that they know that your grace is greater than all their sin. There's not one sin that can keep them out of heaven that your blood can't wash away. God, I praise you for such a great salvation. I pray that we would be an evangelizing church that we would have confidence in this gospel. We would, we would know for sure that people around us will not be great until they're good. 
that what we really need is the power of the gospel to transform us one heart at a time. So God, give us grace and give us a new affection, cause us to prize Jesus above all else, to be willing to sell everything in by Christ, to be willing to go after him as the treasure in the field, as a man did with the pearl of great price. Work in us, O oh God. Have mercy on us, O oh God. We are too tepid and too lukewarm, and we presume far too often on your grace. I know it's true of me, and I ask you to forgive me this morning, God. Work in us and work through us to build your church. The gates of hell might not overcome it. Father, give us grace for every challenge we face this week. Give us grace to face it with what I like to call a holy composure. Composed not because we're strong, composed because we're weak, but we know the strength of the gospel and the grace of God who has loved us and saved us and is now reigning in our hearts and in our lives. May others see Christ in us and ask us for the reason of the hope that lies in us. And I pray that every person at Christ Fellowship, every member of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within them with meekness and fear, with gentleness and respect for your awesome glory through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the woman at the well and the Savior of sinners like us, we pray. Amen.